My name is Scott Hogan, and I'm a golf coach located just outside of Chicago, Illinois. Over the past several years, I've been searching for the knowledge that would make me a better golf coach and become someone who helps my students play better and enjoy the game of golf more. I never thought this search would take me to certain places or allow me to meet certain people, but as the search has continued and the knowledge has been learned, I want to invite you to join me along the way as we explore more ideas that help golfers and coaches become the most successful they can be. Welcome to the Be Epic Podcast. And everybody, how's it going? Thank you so much again for tuning in to the Be Epic Podcast. We're excited. We're going to be continuing our conversation with Richard Franklin of Discover Golf tonight. We will be getting into the game design and what it goes into making a really thought-provoking and engaging golf game. And some of the things that you want to be thinking about as you go forward try to put some of these ideas that we talked about in previous episodes into practice in your own coaching programs or helping out your junior golfers that are out there. So again, we're going to be using a lot of ideas that come from episode one and two. So if you had not listened to those, I highly recommend you go back. We're going to be just going forward with what we talked about in those episodes. So I think it would be a good idea if you, you check those out. So, as we get into the game design idea, I think the one thing that you want to start paying attention to is the, the many different avenues, how you know we don't need to be locked in to a certain way or certain type of thing. You know, I, I see a lot of things that go on with games that you know, there's, there's one type of game for this type of situation. And as we start talking and where you're going with what the game and what we're trying to help our juniors do, you're going to see right off the bat when we start talking with Richard, we're going to be talking, I think, a, a different avenue of how to build a golf game and what we're trying to accomplish first. And that's this idea that there's an emotional attachment to the game that we want to start with and start thinking about first as we go to build a golf game so again thank you for everybody for the support in the first two episodes we really appreciate it i really appreciate it would love to hear your feedback and hope you enjoy episode three with richard franklin But these would be some things that, that I would look at in terms of defining uh, constraints that I would use to, to make games, right? So um, I would, you could start, you can really start anywhere you want, which is, uh, which is the interesting thing or the maddening thing, depending on your perspective. I'll say there's, this, this is one kind of framework Another framework I would use would have nothing to do with this, which would be um, the emotional response that I want, right? We all know how important emotion is in our decision-making and the, the realistic application of these skills on the golf course. So in that case, I would use a different model. So I'll just briefly touch on that. So as a game designer, you need to understand what you have to play with. 
right? You as a designer, all you can do, very much like a coder on software, is create rules, right? You, all you do as a designer is create rules. Now, the rules create a kind of state space, right? Which basically says, here's where you stand with right? So now you're working with the rule set and that creates dynamics, right? So rules are static, right? You set your lag ladder board up and you say they've got to putt incrementally forward. Your player is going to react with that state space and then they're going to feel something based on how they're reacting to the rules. You as a designer, I think it's interesting to say, okay, it's rules, dynamics, and then emotion. So I like to start oftentimes with what do I want the emotion, the emotional texture or payload of the game to be? Do I want the emotion to be, the word we used, we just used today was this idea of schadenfreude, which is this idea of, it's fun have kind of some, you know, some wholesome laughs or fun around somebody's uh, mishaps, right? That, that's, that, that's just a classic emotional response to the game. And, and if it's done in the right way, that's a really great sort of game environment where you all understand that the thing that you're doing is difficult and it's funny or interesting to have a kind of whoops moment, right? Now, okay, so that's what you want. You want that kind of texture, all right? Well, then what kind of dynamics do you need? Well, you need dynamics that make people feel like they're not stupid or bad or whatever if they fail. So what does that mean? That means that the success rate of doing something can't be too high. Do you get where I'm going with this? Because if every, if like, if 90, if the better player does this one thing 90% of the time, and then the one dude has the tragic fail every time he does it, well, then it's not fun to laugh at because he's, right. he feels bad. Okay, but that's going to inform your mechanics mm -hmm. or your rules, right? Because now you have to create an environment where the success rate is 20%. And we just yeah. talked about it has to kind of feel fun to fail. Okay, well, what feels fun to fail at. Well, it probably has to be, in my opinion, just as I'm thinking, it has to be probably a kind of a grandized environment, right? Where you have some probably some hardware, you know, you have some theater and a ball is going somewhere and it's spilling off or there's a noise or like, so now you're wrapping your, your head around sort of the aesthetics of the game. Like at this point, I would already be getting out like something loud or a ramp or something, you know, like to try to create this texture of this this moment in time where I want somebody to all, you know, to have a good laugh around somebody's misfortune in an environment where you're not really supposed to be successful. So hopefully in that sort of 100 seconds, I captured how we use the emotion to inform the rules. Yeah. I think that's the big, that's the big mistake. I see junior coaches every day and I see them on the forum and, God, again, it's awesome that like everybody is doing a great job trying to get kids involved with golf. But what I what I sense is that people start with the rules. They don't understand the relationship between the rules and how 
players in, in react to, to the rules, which is the dynamics, and then the emotion. So my my tidbit to coaches is always start what do you what do you want the junior to feel? And then what and that's gonna take you into what I think would be the most appropriate rule set. So that that's that that's kind of some insight to how I do it. So just for another example, let's say um, you know, so well, to tie that to like golf, like, you know, finding it yeah. fun to fail. I mean, we, I think as golfers, we all can relate to why you want to be a little bit accepting of failure. Is that kind of where you're and, leading with that? Absolutely. That, that, that ties into that because if like, you know, a lot of the, you reference motor learning, you know, they'll say like maybe a 50% rate of success is like the, the, the best in terms of, you know, you're, you're successful at it enough where it's like okay you understand what you're doing and how that relates to the success but you're failing enough to give yourself feedback right mm -hmm. that fit but that's only one lens the lens of game design or the more holistic lens is that you should be comfortable playing games that have a 10 percent rate of success mm -hmm. and a 90 percent rate of success and then toggle that back in terms of do i want something to be more easy fun right at 90%, do I want something to be more in line with that sort of healthy acceptance of failure at 10% because I'm sort of emotionally buffered because it's at 10%, mm -hmm. or then do I want something between 10 to 50, which now the, this, this Fiero or this triumph moment is able to happen, right? That's another emotion that right. you, know, you can engineer, that's the critical word, you can engineer through the dynamics of your rules. Like, I, you know, I speak about this passionately when I'm talking about this specifically because coaches need to understand it. This is like magic. This is a magic trick. You have, if you understand how rules and dynamics create emotion, you hold the cards. You can create, we all know when we're in the zone, when we're loving and playing the thing or in growth, you're in flow, whatever sort of words you want to use. You have the power as a coach to do that if you understand uh, the code. And so, as we said at the beginning of the episode, we were going to be talking about building a game from a type of response that you're looking for from your juniors. And again, that's not the only way, as Richard mentioned, that you can do it, but it's an interesting framework to work from especially dealing with junior golfers who, you know, may not have recognition of certain emotions or not realize some of the emotions that are out there, that we can help them along as they continue to learn this, what turns out to be a very tough game, as we all know, if we played and coached it. So, again, that's not the only way we can go about designing a game. Now we're going to let Richard talk a little bit more about some of the exact constraints he would use and in this section, we're going to apologize. There is a little bit of a breakup of his audio as he was talking. So we apologize for that. But the information he's providing is just so good. We just let it run and let him keep going with what he's providing us because I think it's just too useful to take any of it out. This is something, this, these, these, this would be game name, but this would be an example of if I search for 8 to 10 year olds, and I wanted a two-player cooperation game. Again, this cooperation is sort of the main 
sort of emotional framework of the game. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted total putting. And so in my, so this gets into kind of the skill development stuff too, where this would be like looking at the whole process, right? You got to read the green, you got to marry line and speed. It's really the, the totality, you know, of the, the putting effort. So I always sort of go back to, again, the motor learning stuff where you'll see here, I could change that up. And if I wanted to do that, but I wanted more of a silly, right? Mm-hmm. Or more of this kind of frivolous play energy, I could keep the same total putting feel, but I would go to one of these. If I wanted the same feel here, but I wanted more of a self-expression type texture to the game, I would go to that. If I wanted a game that was block practice as a distinguishing feature, right? As a distinguishing feature, I say, look, I don't have enough block practice in my putting. Okay, well, you do as a coach. I'm just telling you, you got enough coach out there. But if you don't, well, this gets into deterministic modeling. So I'm just I'm going to go on a quick tangent very quickly. So what do we know about deliberate practice? It matters, but how much does it matter? What is deliberate practice? I mean, this is another wormhole, but here, here's so Mac, uh, McNamara and El from Princeton did a meta analysis of deliberate practice. So mm-hmm. all of the different categories: business, hobbies, sports. Uh, I don't know, maybe one other category. How much could they say that deliberate practice was the distinguishing difference between world champion top performers and everybody else? Okay, the number is staggeringly low, staggeringly low, mm-hmm. okay? It's not the 10,000-hour rule. I know we've sort of debunked that, and this is an important concept, too, because here's why the 10,000-hour rule and deliberate practice resonates, especially with Americans, because it's a great mindset to have, right? Mm-hmm. This is what we should be telling our kids. No matter what, if you work the hardest, you're going to succeed. It's not true, but it's a great and healthy mindset. You know what I mean? Like that, mm-hmm. the psychology of the of deliberate practice is why it's so great. It's it, it it's a it's a value system more than science. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I I hate to diverge, but what they found, which I, I thought was really interesting, which I don't know if a lot of people talk about, what sort of activities were more decide, you know, a higher decider of, of these activities by deliberate practice. Marathon running, weightlifting, right? Things that have repetitive motions. If I'm a body, if if I'm going for a bench press record, course genetics are going to be a huge thing but this is a, a, a clean example of you know what the more i bench press probably going to help me like mm-hmm. almost assuredly right but if i'm going to be a gymnast well then what am i going to do the same pole vault over and over and over again there's tons of different things to do so it's the quality of your ability to you know adapt to the situation and I, we could go on and on but 
in a golf context, I think this matters. Because have the kind of perceptual demands that an eight-footer does, right? Your ability to have targeting and a stroke pattern that coordinates with you, all the stuff that goes into making that seemingly impossible eight-footer, right? For some, not for you, you're a good part of it. That's going to be way less based on block practice than a three-footer, which, you know what, at the end of the day, if you can sit there and you can trim your rotation and you can just bang out zeros, block practice probably is a good idea there. And I would make the argument that the drive, driving has, should have more block practice than other aspects. Why? Similar environment. And you know what? For the most part, 300 straight, like, always works. But a 7-iron where you don't control the environment, what are you going to say? That 172 straight always works? No. Because from what lie to what pin, with what trajectory, with what, with what wind, you know? The, the 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 regularity of the drive is so much so much different. I would say three footers and driving the most block practice. Just my opinion, right? And then everything else needs to be way more randomized. So the reason I bring it up is because it isn't that going to inform the kind of games that you play? Yeah, of course, right? Because that creates an entire sort of rule set to it. Hey, well. This is going to have, I'm going to have to figure out something for block, which for line, but I, the emotion I wanted was flow, right? So I wanted them to be lost, right, in this thing. Like the, the feedback loop of the game was good enough, right, to keep them engrossed in that environment. Okay, so what does it mean to be in flow? Okay, well, it means to, to have the, the demands of the task just outside your reach, but you're meeting those demands, right? Almost in perfect cadence. So it's like skill get demand gets a little higher, you rise up. Demand gets a little higher, you rise up. What else do you need for flow? No distractions, right? No distractions for flow. So the rule set has to be very easy. There shouldn't be a lot of breaking and thinking about, okay, what's the next thing to do? big wait times are gonna disrupt flow, right? So by simply saying I want flow block line, that's starting to inform some decisions I would make as to the dynamics, or, or I should say the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. So, and then in this particular one, this was for eight to 10 year olds, I put this in there because, okay, we have to talk about it, the, not not the mechanical principle, not the skill, but the eight to ten year old that comes to my one week camp who had a great time, just explored like thirty different aspects of the game, realized that golf was not what they thought it was. They love it, but they for whatever reason they've got the kind of wobbly junior finish with their putter. I'm thrilled. Because I think I've, I've convinced this junior through gameplay and a different mindset 
that golf's a really great thing, and, and, I, and I think they're going to come back. Like, I can almost guarantee it. But what do I think the parent at Blah 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 Country Club is going to say about them going out Saturday morning or Sunday afternoon for golf, and the, and the juniors got the, got the big old fish-in-the-boat finish? Oh, yeah. What's the parent going to say? They're going to say, that's we're paying a premium for that? I'm saying, well, yeah, you're paying a premium because it's my life's mission to frame this in a way, heuristic tree, blah, okay, great. I could go there with them. But the fact is their mental model is around how does that look? How does that putting stroke look after I, I, I registered my son or daughter for, for one week camp at Discover Golf? So sometimes as a coach, you need to have some games too that say, look, this might not be game-like or this might not be fun, but on a Friday afternoon, coaches, we've got to play statue finish putting. Mm-hmm. We got to, we got to, you know, we got to play heels up hitting, right? And you can add it, you can add a little game mechanic around things under their shoes or whatever, but like you got to see heel up and you got to be here. Like iron that out for 20 minutes before we leave on Friday. Like, yeah. I get you. There is definitely an element of there's a predetermined idea out there of what that we as coaches battle too about what this is going to be. Right. Big time. Yeah. Uh, well, and here's a, here's an idea I've been kind of pondering the last like couple of weeks was, you know, almost there's, there's this, like, this feeling for me, at least you have to emotionally prepare these ju- uh, junior for when like, you know, let's say you teach them the proper mechanics and we know you can have the best putting stroke driving, you know, the best driver swing that doesn't guarantee success. And so it's almost like when you're trying you're working back from, from the emotional side, you're, you're prepping them for that. You got to almost earn the right to work on the technical side and to be able to handle that, that that's what you're yeah. Does that yeah, sound I mean, like an idea or yeah, that's an no, idea I've been course. having. Of, of course. I mean, look, I just, I like, I think, I think it's, it's an amazing thing to be able to expose a junior golfer, a human being, quite frankly, to a kaleidoscope of emotions on a golf course, because mm-hmm. the way I see it right now, I tend to see one emotion when I see people taking golf lessons, which is either like curiosity in the beginning, maybe, and then frustration, right? Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't see a kaleidoscope of interaction between the thing which is their, their mind and the thing that they're trying to do because nobody understands the code space of, of game design. And so not, not nobody, that's not fair at all, but there's not enough attention paid to that. Um, And so holistically, if we look at the, again, if we look at the, the skill that is golf, you are going to always be going in this, you know, in the emotional, you know, vacuum cleaner, you're going to be getting, getting spin cycled every day, all day. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be up. You're going to feel like you can put, you know, you found something with your putting stroke. Okay. Now, now you're confident. Now you're looking forward to the future. Now you miss a couple. Now you're not sure of yourself. Okay. Now you're tired. Now you go start hitting. Now you're confused. Now, like 
every day you're you're exploring these emotions i mm-hmm. think it's our responsibility to subject them to that so that they this is this is constraint based learning right there's the human being mm-hmm. there's the task and there's the environment it, it, it's only when those three intersect that you have transfer of skill so if you know they're going to be disgusted scared happy amped up tired and everything in between during nine holes, then you need to create situations that revolve around how do I make a kid, how do I make a kid go from frustrated to feeling like he can conquer the world to frustrated again and then see if he can if he can go over the hump one more time. Mm-hmm. Game design can do that. Absolutely. The idea of skill acquisition in there is extremely important, I think, for not only coaches, but for parents that have junior golfers or junior athletes in general, where I think the idea that we're going to have a very random game and we're going to acquire the skills from an environment that doesn't provide us a lot of randomness in how we practice that seems like two conflicting ideas, as Richard pointed out there. And I think something that, as we see our players, I know our juniors in our academy, especially after we've talked with Richard, uh, they've really enjoyed and been able to perform better on the golf course, thinking less about some of the the technique and, and drilling home that perfect robotic swing, and instead getting in tune and, and getting in touch with what they're capable of doing, under what situations, under what conditions, and really trying to take those to the golf course. So as we continue with Richard, we're going to get into, again, a little bit more into all of the mechanics of games, what can we do, and some of the different ways you can approach building a game, and how you can get your juniors to do some very important things especially you know as a technical side of the golf swing but doing it in a way that encourages them to learn keeps it fun and keeps them from getting frustrated as they go through this idea of learning golf for hopefully a long time we could go back to this so we could look at constraints so this would be a different way of looking at it so the way i say okay we, we've talked fairly extensively about practice type, but I'll just go over really quickly. So you've got your block practice, same thing over and over again. Well, you want to pick the one thing that you're working on, right? So make sure it's not just hitting, it's hitting with a deliberate purpose, I would say. Block practice, or semi-block, otherwise known as serial, which is kind of like, I call it the drive, trip, and putt of golf, which is you've got like a small amount to each one. So you're going to hit five drives, hit five approaches, uh, hit five pitch shots, something like that, right? Where Mm -hmm. you're letting the junior kind of stabilize their pattern a little bit, and then you go to the next thing. Random practice, right, would be some kind of golf-like maneuver, stroke, but either going to a different target, um, different clubs, uh, different curves, different intentions. 
right? Why I look at variable practice, um, and I think you can probably find various opinions about this, but I would say this would be something like um, hitting a, that same seven iron, but trying to hit it a little bit out of the heel, a little bit out of the toe, a little, you know, right in the middle. So you're you're doing something in a in, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily do it on the golf course, right? So different grips, you're varying the way you do that that one thing. And a differential practice would be like organized madness, right? Like intentionally topping the ball or, um, you know, hitting from, uh, we have some games where um, you may have seen this watchtower where you have one person spinning a club behind them hitting and they stop. And the way the club is angled is how they have to set up to the golf ball and they've got to hit it inside a predefined target window. So you would see way more bent over the normal left side bent and this is where they start from right so complete chaos and then from here they've got to reappropriate their tilt and their bends to find some kind of a semblance of a swing and then hit so just that in itself would be a, a place that you could start right like how much random practice do i have how, so so on and so forth now when i look at it, you could have pre-process which is what are some things that I can manipulate before the motion even takes place, right? I could put some T-gates, is a, is a fairly common one. Change the club, how much routine consideration am I messing with their grip? There's all kinds of things you can do before the ball even, the body moves. Right, which is, what am I, what am I specifically asking them to do in space? Am I putting the demands on their movement then you could constrain ball like what i would say in flight characteristics right does the ball have to curve a different way trajectory hang time right you can get into some of the um sort of radar data here obviously which, which is make, can make things easier this is for approach or this is for driver specifically and then outcome which is the resting ball location right how far did it go Am, am I doing kind of a leapfrog thing or is it, you know, there's all kinds of resting ball considerations. What's the target, right? And then you can get into what are the wind conditions? Like how do you define a wind? One V one, it's cooperation. It's amount of successes within a time limit. It's more survivor style, right? Where you, where, where it's a battle of attrition, like you're the last one standing, which I personally don't like as a mechanic, but you now have wind conditions possibly. Then you can take all of that and you can, what we call use like pre, uh, preconceived or, 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 or known mechanics or rule bundles, right? So, some of you've heard me talk about in the forum, which would be like resource management. Like, are they starting in, in a impoverished environment in terms of what resources they have versus do they have the most resources to start and then they dwindle down? So what would a resource, then you, that'll get your mind thinking about like, what resources do you have to hit a driver? T's a resource, isn't it? It's a lot better to have a T. <laughs> than to not have a T if you're hitting driver for distance. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so if you're using a resource management sort of scheme, now you're thinking, okay, what do I want them to start with T's? 
and then be losing T's or, or do I want do I want a dwindled T height? Because it's really nice to have a T that's standard and it's getting incrementally worse as my T goes to nothing. Okay, so you hey, we're designing a game here. Um, what else is a resource for driver? Like being able to have stance width, right? It's not that fun trying to long driver with your feet together. Right, so stance width could be a resource. How about length of swing? Yeah, I'd say it's pretty nice to be able to, to make a full turn and get the club back there, right? And so right. like you could say body rotation, total motion of the club, stance width, um, having your eyes open is a resource, having tees is a resource, ball position is a resource. It's not fun hitting driver from your back foot. Yeah. So this is how my mind works now in game design, where if you want to look at a rule, like we could have just done a game around all of these different things. Maybe yeah. now you can, you can, now you can consolidate the resources with something else and you've got a game. Oh, and so it's like almost like you, instead of what most of us would call or most coaches or teachers or instructors would call uh, fundamentals you call it right. resources, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you, you, you could say that. I mean, you would like, I getting to kind of, kind of constraint based learning, you would say something like, um, you know, you want to attune them to key perceptual cues. So we all know this juniors do really well when you put them on high T's, medium T's, no T's, and they keep varying the T height because part of the skill is just mapping right your perception of where the ball is in space and mm -hmm. having to having to alter this to this to this that's skill building right? right so by by basically showcasing that this one thing this t height is worthy of being called a resource means you put your perceptual attention to that thing which mm -hmm. You know, you get all these, you know, they're too steep, blah, blah, blah. Put them on a tee like this. Watch yep. the motion change. Yep. You know, and so now you now, now, now for, for 20 minutes, you're, you're basically saying the end goal is to have a tee like this. You as a coach are also placing high, hierarchical attention on the thing that absolutely matters, right? Getting mm -hmm. a kid, hitting up on it, you know, all the stats about angle mm -hmm. of attack and you got to have back bend and of course, right? So getting them attuned to that matters. Wow. What an episode with Richard Franklin really diving into developing juniors, getting into kind of the nuts and bolts of, what does a game do? How can that help our juniors? How can we keep the game fun? And again, when we talked about back all the way in episode one, the idea that you know, I think there's a line in the sand, whether you teach technique or you teach you know, this gamified, gamification style of coaching. And in reality, they really do blend together to help kids get the most out of their experience in this game of golf. I know it's something when I started talking with Richard, he really had me looking at 
how I grew up learning the game, you know, the, the things I teach, and, and why do I teach those, and how, you know, those are things, and how did I learn some of those things when I was a golfer way back when, and why did I know, let's say, that the ball position needed to be forward, and do we want to take away that opportunity for our juniors to discover those things, to plug his company a little bit there with with our how we approach providing the information and or setting up an environment for them to learn in. So something very interesting, I think, to take away throughout the whole conversation uh, with Richard. So I couldn't thank him enough for coming on and joining us. And I hope we have more and hear more from him. If you're interested, and I hopefully think you should be and hopefully are, you can find out more about Discover Golf at discovergolf.co. We are going to be having a certification. Richard's been traveling and he's doing certifications for any interested coaches that want to learn more about his 10 lenses and his approach to coaching. There's going to be one in Chicago uh, on September 23rd and 24th. You can check it out on his website. And You'll see also there all the other places he's having them really around the world as he travels around. So, again, thank you to Richard. Thank you to Discover Golf. Their great work they've done. And thank you to all of you for tuning into this episode. We really hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you liked it, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear more from what you want to hear and learn about in future episodes. So, again, thank you for listening to the Be Epic Podcast.